Well, we want to turn in our scriptures now to the book of Romans as we are going to back, go back into this uh, study as we have been uh, taking time to go through the entire book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 9. The section from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 on to the chapter. Chapter 9 through 11 is a section that deals with God's work in Israel. It's life, uh, the life of that nation. And there's a, this is a more challenging passage as we look at it. There's a detailed outline in your bulletins as well that will help you to follow along. Romans chapter 9, one of the most challenging passages of the Bible, addressing the sovereign purposes of God, particularly with the nation of Israel, as we read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. It reads here, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it is said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, 
although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the seas, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us to a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay at Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray before we begin our study of God's Word this morning. Our Lord in heaven, we come to this passage of text declaring and outlining that you are God. We pray, God, that you would illumine our minds and grant to us understanding in our hearts that you might speak to us clearly through your Word and that you would grant to me the right words to say and that, Father, your Spirit would help us and illumine our minds. In Jesus' precious name, amen. One of the most challenging passages of Scripture is the passage we come to here today declaring the purposes of God. The purposes of God and the plan of God. And It's a passage that's perhaps not hard actually to interpret but for many people it is one of the passages that is hard for them to accept And since most people in time have learned about God from the time that we're small, we learn about God and we learn about God being a very loving God, a benevolent God, a kind God, a completely true and good God. And all of that is very true. It's very true. We tend to hear less about the justice of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God even, as well, which are also true, modern Today, people conceive of God as a, sort of a grandfatherly type of a, of a man or something like that that would never hurt anyone. But a biblical view of God helps us in our understanding as we come to this passage, a very pivotal passage that speaks to us about God's plan, God's purpose, particularly with Israel. And it's important for us today, as we go into this passage, it's going to be a passage that will require you to think, to understand, and to not simply look over it in a superficial, cursory glance and that might be full of stories or whatever for us, but 
because it has particular implications as we look and study it will require that you think and that's why there's a much more detailed outline in your bulletin to follow along because herein lies Paul's elucidation of God being a sovereign God and God being one who chooses and so as we look forward to this passage we look forward verse by verse as we go on there is an outline there that I hope that you'll follow along with us and here it is not necessarily or particularly speaking about about salvation per se because many people when they talk about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man or they debate the idea of God being sovereign in salvation blessing some and not blessing others or God's uh, choosing of some the election of others and his reprobation of others meaning that he passes over some for salvation they go to this passage but it's the context of this passage is more so in relationship to God's sovereign dealings with the nation of Israel so, we haven't been in the book of Romans for a number of months, and I'd like to paint perhaps a, a framework or a picture for you of where we've been and where we're going. And the book of Romans is a highly theological book. In fact, there's all, all sorts of theology and doctrine, teaching, that's what doctrine means, teaching of Christian truth. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, and then comes the very first, the very first command for us to do something, doesn't come until chapter 12, and we're only on chapter 9. Paul often does that, you know. He says, these are the things you have to understand about life. And this is how we ought to behave in light of that. And he begins in Romans chapter 1 and tells us about how we are sinners. And how God has been so gracious. And because of His love, He, he declared some to be righteous. He justified us. He declared us righteous and how His process of sanctification, how He causes us to grow so that we can be much more like Christ so that we can shine for Him and how He's given us the Spirit of God to, to indwell us and to live a Spirit-filled life that we might have a life that is full of who God is, that we might exemplify the character of godliness in our life and be a testimony of Christ. And then we come to chapter 9, where we are at today. And here Paul tells us about in verses, in chapters 1 through, through, through 5, I mean verses 1 through 5, about Paul's great sorrow. Paul, Paul's great sorrow. The sorrow that a lot of his people have not come to know Christ. Do you know why Jews today reject Christ? You know, the, the, the nation of Israel, when you go to Israel, when you go to Israel, it's very secular. It's very secular. In fact, most Jews there are, are secular. When you go around, it's a very nice country to go in. And, and you know, they're, 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 they're fairly well, uh, well off, well to do. Their greatest, uh, you know, greatest industry is tourism because so many people want to go to Israel. And you get to ride in the taxis that are all BMWs and all that. And it's really quite a nice place to go, but very, very secular. Very secular. Most Jews are, are like that and they are, in fact, many of them, some of them, I should say, are professing atheists. In fact, uh, they are anti-God. They can even be anti-God, like my neighbor at, at, at the office. He's anti-God. He's Jewish. He's anti-God. He says he's anti-religion. He's quite angry. He says, where was God during the, the Holocaust when my grandfather was killed? And is very angry. And many Jews reject Christianity 
fact, if you were a Jew and you decide that you're going to follow Christ, they'll disown you. Why do they reject Christ? Three major reasons why they reject Christ. One is they have this argument that says, well, if Jesus was the Son of God, if He was the Messiah, and if we are God's chosen people, because even Christians will say Israel is God's chosen people, why did it? Why was it that our religious leaders in the past missed the boat? Why was it that for hundreds of years, so many Jews throughout the centuries do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, wouldn't God want His Son or His Messiah or whoever that He would send to be recognized by His own people? And yet for thousands of years, they, uh, our people, have, have recognized Jesus. No, not as some Savior or Messiah. They've recognized Him as perhaps some heretical movement that have dragged a number of people away into something they call Christianity. And so they have an argument. I am not going to turn to Christ because of our history. Look, for centuries it has been like that. And God wouldn't do something like that. Secondly, Jews reject Christianity because of the abrogation or the, their perceived annulment of the Old Testament Scriptures. They would say, well, if you have the New Testament now and it tells us about some new covenant you speak of, what happens to our old Hebrew Scriptures? I'm not going to let go of that. And being so entrenched in the legalism of that day... And of today, they, they follow, they desire to follow the Old Testament laws and to say that the Old Testament's no longer valid or applicable or whatever it might be is unthinkable to them. So not only do Jews today reject Christianity because of their history, they reject it because they feel that, well, the Old Testament is, that they treasure is no longer valid. And thirdly, they reject it on the base of, basis of the fact that, well, if the New Testament is true and the New Testament invites Gentiles to come to God throughout just by grace and not, not through any uh, vestibule of, uh, of Judaism, that, that, that can't be right. I mean, we've got to do all this. God asked us to do all of these things if we were going to come before God. And now you're saying Gentiles, those that we, we, we despise, can come to God in freedom now? That's not right. And so they would reject Christianity based upon the history, based upon the perceived annulment of the Old Testament and because it makes it too easy for Gentiles to come to know Christ. And that's what precipitates some of these thoughts that Paul says here in this particular chapter when it comes to how God will deal with Israel and how God is sovereign in His purpose and His plan. And he begins here by expressing his heart. He says in verse 1, I'm telling you the truth, and my conscience bears witness of his great sorrow in his heart. Verse 2, and unceasing grief. Why? Because his people have rejected God. His people have rejected Jesus. His people have rejected the new and good, the good news that is to come. And he said, I would do anything if I could give myself my own life so that my people could, could come to know Christ. In verse 3, I would. And that is his heart. And I thought to myself, is that our heart as well? That people might come to know Christ? I thought of my own life and I thought, my goodness. What is it that we value here that we just give and we invest our life and our time in? I thought about my own family and I thought about people that I know 
And I thought to myself, boy, when I read this, one of the things that we value here in our culture, I know, and I know in my family we did, and I thought of my folks. What would they do? What they do? I know my folks and my family and I know many other families. One of the things they truly value and they would put their time and energy in is education. Education to them was so highly valued. And we look in our culture today. The U.S. Census Bureau of 2002 tells us what? Tells us that, well, in Seattle, we have one of the highest educated cities in the entire nation. Almost 50% of people here in the city have a bachelor's degree or higher and a number have doctoral degrees. And people will work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week or whatever it might be, the whole thrust of life so that I can give my kids or that my kids or whoever might be, I can have a good education. And their desire and their push is for that. And I'm not saying that education is bad. It can be a very good thing in fact. But is our heart the same and our passion the same for that of those who don't know Christ? To say that person there that I run into my neighbor, when I see them, I see they have a great need. Because far beyond the 40, 50, 70 years that they'll live here on this earth is their eternal destiny. And I want to invest my life in the things that will last for eternity. Does our heart cry for people who don't know Jesus like Paul's does here? I wish myself, it says in verse 3, could be a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. That is the heart for the unsaved. But are we so stuck on ourselves that we walk past not even realizing that the person who is walking past us is spiritually dead? And so Paul addresses this. People say, well, hasn't God failed then? That's the objection of the Jews. If Jesus was a savior for the people of Israel, has God failed then? Has God failed in his promise to bless his people with a savior? After all, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel and they were going to be the chosen people intended to be the light to the world that all people would be blessed through Abraham. Has God not failed? That is the question that Paul anticipates and answers here in verse 6. The first question, potential objection that he says is, has God failed? And the answer in verse 6 is, number 1, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The answer, Paul says, is no. God's promises have never failed. They will never fail. They, will, they have not failed. Why? Because God's promises to the people of of Abraham's descendants are not simply those who are of his flesh. In other words, the Jew. Remember the Pharisees? They would be so proud. They would say, you know what? I, 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 I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm okay. If I'm born an Israelite, I'm automatically part of the family of God. People say that today. I'm born into a Christian family. I must be a Christian. I was raised as a pastor's kid or a missionary kid or I was raised in the church or I grew up in the church or I go to church every Sunday. It doesn't speak of anything because it's not physically or it's not what we do. It is that of the heart. 
the condition of the heart. Everyone comes to God, not because they are of some Christian family, not because of their some lineage or whatever. And Paul says that here, because those who are of Israel, he says, are not simply fleshly descendants of Abraham, like the Pharisees would say. That is, it is not, verse 8, children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. Paul's here writing to Jews. He's writing to fellow Israelites. He's saying just because you're of Abraham's descendants doesn't make you part of the family of God, quote-unquote. And he gives two illustrations. One, that of Isaac. That of Isaac. For he says here, for this word of promise, he says here, and the children of promise, and he's speaking in verse 7, through Isaac your descendants will be named. This is the promise of God. Abraham had two sons. Remember God at, when Abraham was 75 years old. And God came to him and said, what? I want you to, to go to a land I'm going to show you. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was a 75-year-old man who, who was an idolater. That's what Joshua 24 says. He was an idolater. And God chose him and he said, Go to this land, the land that I will show you, and I will bless you and make you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so he went on. And for years, somewhere around 15 years or so, they waited for this child of promise because Abraham had no kids. He had no kids at that time. Imagine waiting 15 years. God says, you know what, you're going to have a child. And you're 75, well, you'll have to wait a while. And here you are, 15 years later. And what happens? What happens is that Sarah, his wife, who's about 10 years younger than he is, she was 65 at the time, and here she is. She's coming on about 80 years old. And she's looking at Abraham, saying, well, how am I going to have a child? I'm almost 80 years old. According to the custom of that time, you could have a surrogate parent. So that's what they decided to do. They decided to say, well, I have my handmaid here. Her name is Hagar. Abraham, why don't you have a child through Hagar? And perhaps that is God's means to bless us. So Abraham has a child through Hagar, and his name was Ishmael. But he wasn't a child of promise, as God had given them that promise. And they decided, well, later on... They were, going to, they were going to continue on and God gave them a child at a hundred years old. Abraham had a child and his name was Isaac. His name was Isaac. Both were sons of Abraham. But Paul says here, it is the son Isaac through whom your descendants will be named. Isaac was going to be the son of blessing. So, the point being that Paul is saying... It's not simply those who are descendants of Abraham because the Jews felt that if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I am part of the family of God. Like I mentioned today, many people, if I'm a descendant of a, uh, of a Christian family, I'm a Christian too. Well, he makes a second point and he says, not only through Isaac, but look, it is through Jacob, not Esau. Both were sons of Isaac. Both were sons of Isaac, but only one was chosen. He anticipates that someone will have an objection, you see, to the promises of God. And he says, God is a God of promise. When it says He will do it, He will do it. And God's promises have not failed. 
God's promises have not failed. Abraham had two children. In fact, later on in Genesis 25, he married again to a woman named Keturah. Had six other kids, but it was through Isaac. And here, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second, these twins. And it says, though, what? That not only this, there was Rebekah also, and she conceived and had twins by one man, our father Isaac. And what does it say about Isaac? It says what? That before they had done anything good or bad, while they were yet born, in order that God's promise according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This was God's decree. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. God chose the older to serve the younger in this case. God chose uh, uh, Esau to serve Jacob. It was by his sovereign decree. It was by God's choice. Even before they were born. This is not simply by chance or by luck. It was by God's decree. That the older would serve the younger. And that last verse which says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is a summary. That particular prophecy or phrase was said by Obadiah some 1,000 years after Esau and after, after, after uh, Esau and Jacob lived. And in that 1,000 years, and when you look back into the book of Genesis, there's no outward declaration of God's feeling towards uh, Jacob or towards Esau. So perhaps the best understanding of, of that is sometimes the Bible uses various names as representatives of the people that have come from them, of their descendants, that is. Perhaps that would be the, perhaps the best way to understand that passage of God hating Esau and loving Jacob. That Jacob was going to be the blessed uh, lineage that was chosen by God. Esau was the father of a nation of a nation called Edom. And Edom was later judged by God. Why? Because it didn't take too many years before Edom turned to idolatry. They turned to live their own way, do their own thing. In fact, they opposed Israel. They opposed Israel, the Edomites did, and they became so idolatrous that God judged them. So Paul says, God's promises to redeem a people for his own possession hasn't failed. Why? Because it is through the spiritual lineage of Abraham. Not simply those who are fleshly descendants. Not simply those who are, who are uh, 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 inherited it by, because of their race. God's chosen choosing of people, just like Jacob and Esau, was done even before someone was born in their case. But then you come to the second objection, which Paul answers here. Is God unjust then? Is God unrighteous because he chose one and not the other? People will say that. How can that be fair? How can it be fair to Esau? I mean, Esau, before he was born, guy had, you know, came out with, with the short end of the stick already. And the answer is no. When he says, there is no injustice, verse 14, shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And he says, may it never be. In other words, he says no in the greatest and strongest way he can in the Greek. No, no, no. May it never be. Meganoite. In other words, he says these people who come, who are blessed in some cases, and others who are not blessed in other cases, is that unjust of God? The answer is no. Many Christians, when they look at this passage, even some Christians would object to God's sovereignty because of this notion 
This notion of fairness, that some, like Esau, were not chosen, and some, like Jacob, were chosen. Paul says no. And he argues for the justice of God, that God is a just God for two reasons. And he gives two illustrations here. God is a just God and he displays his justice by his sovereign choices. And that his main, his main purpose is that he be glorified. And God's glory is shown. God's justice is shown in his glory through two means. In the two illustrations that he gives here. One is his mercy. And number two, in his justice, in his judgment upon Pharaoh. Number one, his justice, or he is a just God because of his mercy and his glory is shown in his mercy. In Exodus chapter 33, 19, he gives a quote here. He says to Moses, verse 15, this is the first reason. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, to understand that, we look at the context. What is the context of that particular reason he gives? Is God an unfair God? And Paul says, no. Look at what God says. The context of that is that God had... You remember when Israel was in Egypt? Israel was in bondage underneath Pharaoh. And they had been slaving away. And Pharaoh was, had become very, very uh, overbearing on the nation of Israel. And they cried out to God because of their oppression. And God sends Moses onto the scene. Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go, God says. And Pharaoh says, no. And yet, God, what God does is God shows Pharaoh his glory by bringing the, the judgments upon him. Ten judgments, ten plagues that would counter the plagues of Egypt. And he brought Israel out by his mighty hand. And after he had brought Israel out of Egypt, he split the Red Sea. And they crossed through the Red Sea and then he destroyed Pharaoh's army. And during the day, he led that nation of Israel by, by, by a cloud. And at night, he lighted their way by a fire, a pillar of fire. Yeah, what happened when they came to Mount Sinai? Moses went up to meet with God and to receive God's commandments for the nation of Israel. And Israel, even though they had seen this great, magnificent power of their God displayed before them, did what? They gave their gold to Aaron and said, build for us a golden calf. And Aaron built this golden calf and they bowed down and worshipped it. And they said, this is our God who took us out of Egypt. And they committed adultery in their heart and idolatry in their acts. And it was, it was, it was a, a blasphemous to do that. And so, in response, when Moses came down, God's response to them was to put to death. Was to put to death some 3,000 of them. 3,000 of them. That is a lot of people. And yet, if it were not for Moses, who prayed to God, perhaps even more would have been put to death. The idea is that if God were, quote-unquote, fair in our eyes, shouldn't all of the nation have been put to death for their idolatry? But Paul continues to declare here God's mercy. God's mercy. And says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. God chose to stop at 3,000 or so. He chose only to, to punish a certain amount and the others, they would be punished as well, but he chose to take the life of 3,000. 
to us. That was an act of that was an act of judgment as well as his mercy. Mercy in what? Sparing. Sparing the life of all of the tens of thousands of others. We talked this morning in Sunday Bible class about what the difference was between grace and mercy. Grace is something that we 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 give to someone else so that is undeserving, or God gives to us who is undeserving. Mercy is that which we deserve. That we deserve certain punishment or just judgment or whatever. We may deserve that from God, but God withholds that judgment. And God shows His mercy. God showed His mercy upon Israel, and He showed His compassion upon the, those that lived. What would have been fair for the Israelites in our eyes? That the rest of them would have been wiped off the face of the earth? For their sin? Perhaps that would be quote-unquote fair. But God chose to take the life of 3,000 and to have compassion on the rest. That is by God's choosing. And God is sovereign in that. For it says in verse 16, It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Is it because some of those Israelites willed it and said, I'm not going to be judged by God? No. It is dependent upon God who has mercy. Then God shows His glory and God is a just God, as it says in the second reason, in which He shows His justice in bringing judgment upon Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. The second example is that of Pharaoh. Remember when Pharaoh was oppressing the Israelites in Egypt? And Pharaoh is a title, by the way. It was probably one of the kings, like Amenhotep II. He was proud and arrogant. God used his hardened heart to show his glory. God showed his power. If Pharaoh had not hardened his heart, and if God had not hardened his heart as well, then God would not have shown perhaps his plagues that were on there. Pharaoh would have said, well, well all right. You can go. And the people would have left. God used that difficult time, though, to show His glory and to show the justice that He rightly deserved, Pharaoh did. His deliverance of Israel, you see, is the greatest of all celebrations in the Jewish mind. And they celebrate Passover every year. And it shows two truths, this whole situation with Pharaoh and of Israel. Number one, it shows in verse 18 that he has mercy on whom he desires and that he hardens whom he desires. He has mercy on whom he wills, he, has, he hardens whom he wills. Moses and Pharaoh, you see, both of them. Do you realize that Moses was also a murderer? Moses was also a murderer. Pharaoh was murdered as well. And yet one received mercy and the other did not. And God used both in different ways. One to show his glory and his justice through mercy. One to show his glory and his justice through his judgment. The point in the section of the text is not that, is that God is not unjust in either circumstance because the glory of God is done and the justice of God is shown. The compassion of God and the character of who God is. And the higher in our mind's eye that God is, the more we bow to God's sovereign choosing. There will always be that unreconcilable tension, though, in our small understanding, in our small minds of why is it, why is it that the scriptures say in the book of Exodus 
that Pharaoh hardened his heart so many times. Yet it also says God hardened Pharaoh's heart as well so many times. How do we unscrew the unscrutable? Or how do we reconcile those two statements of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his heart as well? That will be something that we, 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 we simply cannot explain. But in God's eyes and in God's mind, it makes perfect sense. Here, why is it there's that tension? That tension between how in the world can God do something like that? Is God unjust? And the answer that Paul gives here is no, God is not unjust. There's that tension that we see in the scriptures when it comes to those who come to Christ as well. When you look in the book of John, flip in your Bibles a few books before in the book of John. There are a number of passages that are very, very indicative of this. In John chapter 6, when Jesus himself says things. In John chapter 6, verse 44. Who comes to Christ? Is it because of us? And Jesus says, no. No one, verse 44 of chapter 6. No one. Not some people, not most people. says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Just as people are not raising themselves from the dead, just as people are not saving themselves, they neither come to Christ unless God draws them, unless it is by God's drawing power. Flip over in a couple of passages, chapters of John 15. John 15, Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. Who chooses whom? John 15, verse 16. It says when they're talking about the relationships and love one another, etc. He says, who chose you? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you or he may give to you. In verse 8, and yet there's the responsibility that we have in chapter 8, I should say, in John chapter 8. I mean, we know God draws people. It is part of God's drawing power and God's choosing. Jesus says He chooses. In verse, chapter 8, though, of uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 24, we have the responsibility as well. For it says in verse 24, And therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Whose responsibility is it? You need to believe, says. And in John chapter 3, another chapter passage, a few chapters over, John chapter 3, verse 18. Whose responsibility is it when it comes to our judgment, our penalty? John chapter 3, verse 18. He who does not believe has been judged already because, why? He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, we have the responsibility to believe. And yet it is belief that is energized because God draws us or because God calls us. In other words, God enables us to believe. Yet if we do not believe, we hold and the responsibility is on us. There is that irreconcilable tension that occurs because in our mind's eye, it doesn't make quite as much sense as we would like it to. Long ago, I had heard an analogy that I had thought was very helpful in my own understanding. And it was as if this picture was painted, that God walked into a valley of dead men's bones, 
full of dead men's bones, and everywhere he looked, there, was, uh, there were simply skeletal remains throughout the entire valley, all because humanity had sinned, and all because God had declared that the penalty of sin was going to be death, and mankind brought that sin upon themselves, and there they are, uh, full of dead men's bones, skeletal remains throughout that entire valley as far as the eye could see. But in love, because of God's choice, God chooses to raise and save some of those individuals that they might be raised to life. That they might be raised to life. Is it for us to blame God and say, God, you're not fair. How can you be just? You should raise everybody, should he? When it is because of our own sin that we are in the state that we are in, He has given mercy and compassion to some and not for others. All because of God's predetermined will. Just as in the case of Jacob and Esau, it was even before they had done good or bad, it says. God's promises, number one, have not failed because of Israel's unbelief. Because His promises extend to those who are not merely of descendants, uh, physical descendants. God is not unjust because of two reasons. Because in showing His mercy and His compassion, as well as His justice and His judgment upon Pharaoh, God shows His glory. God is a just God. How can God then, the third question, how can God then hold us personally responsible for our actions? In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? How can I be held accountable then if I cannot re resist his will? And that is what we'll cover in the coming week. As we talk more, there's more time to elucidate the rest of the passage. As we talk about the doctrine of reprobation, which some call double predestination. But the doctrine of reprobation is that God passes over some. In that valley of dead men's bones, God doesn't raise all. God passes over some and raises some. That is called the doctrine of reprobation. And we'll talk about that next week. But although the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is one of the most debated issues, perhaps, in Christian theology, it also is one of the most comforting. Because we know, you see, that no matter what happens, those who would hold to God as being a sovereign God believe God is in control no matter what happens. There is no more attribute, C.H. Spurgeon says. There is no more attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that God's sovereignty has ordained their afflictions and sovereignty overrules them and sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly contending than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to rule and sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust." Unquote. It is God that we trust, that God is a just God, that God is a good God, and all that happens is for our good ultimately and for God's glory in some way, shape, or form. And yet in our mind's eye, we may not truly fully understand because our minds are limited and God's is unlimited. And yet to God be the glory because God is glorified. 
God is glorified as He shows His mercy, as He shows His compassion, as He shows that He is God over all of the earth. As we look at this following passage, we'll take a look at not only the doctrine of reprobation, but also some of the objections people have as well. And answering some of those objections that come, because it is a passage that we may struggle with, a passage that we struggle with in our own mind's eye, to reconcile, to try to understand and to wrestle with. But we submit to a God who is King, a God who is God, and not of our own making in our own minds. Let's bow to our God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your word was clear and that, Father, you would cause us to bow to you, to submit ourselves to your word, that as we go back even perhaps to reread this text that so clearly speaks of you as our God, We know, Father, that in our culture, especially in our democratic world, we know, Lord, that we desire to have our own choice. And we know that we are responsible, Father, for our choices. And yet you are a sovereign God. Father, it escapes us. But what a wonderful truth it is that you are a God who is in control that we can trust you for your promises never fail may we rest in you and cling tightly Father to your word in Jesus precious name Amen